All right, guys. Well, we're jumping into a hard passage today. Um, but I think it's a passage that if we keep proper context, uh, it, will not, it will not ruin you. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's interesting when it comes to Scripture how quickly it is that we can, we can isolate passages um, and create, um, create what I would refer to as um, is unbalanced visions of what it is that God is actually trying to say. Um, and so uh, we're going to be looking at, at Romans chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 24, uh, and we're going to be considering four objections that, that Paul is going to um, answer. And the, the question that is crucial, some people think of why is 9 through 12 even there? But it's actually crucial to the understanding of the book of Romans because one of the controversies that Paul is consistently having to deal with is that he was the pastor to the Gentiles, but he was a Jewish, he was a Jewish leader who went through a radical conversion. He understood Israel's history. He understood the Torah. He understood the scriptures in depth. He also understood Greek and Roman culture. Um, and so he, here is this unique man in this position that is trying to help the early church. And if you read through the letters of Paul, you can see the, the church had so many conflicts and often the conflicts were directly connected to the, the sort of infighting between Jewish Christians and Gentile believers because Jewish identity was so integral to Israel that even as followers of Christ, there were deep questions and concerns about the freedom that they had in the gospel and why would we not continue to keep the law. And so Paul has been making arguments all the way up to this place that we're at in Romans 9, specifically around how the gospel is different, how the gospel saves not based upon human effort, but based upon God's intervention into human history through Jesus Christ, the incarnation, the God-man. God, the cre creator, became man, creature, and he entered into our dilemma, our sin, and he made it his own, taking sin into himself and atoning for our brokenness, our rebellion, which made us worthy of damnation. Instead, God in his righteousness moves into the world of the unrighteous and takes that unrighteousness upon himself. He becomes both the judge and the judged in our place. It's one of the most beautiful aspects of the gospel. It's the thing that, that diminishes um, the power uh, for us to uh, scapegoat or play the victim. I always like to say that Jesus died for the victim and the victimizer and you in your life will play both of those roles and this is why the gospel is good news and many of us are playing both of those roles at the same time. Jesus is the one for the many and the many and the one. He is the new representative man, new humanity. So this question then arises, well what about God's covenantal promises with Israel? Did he just negate that? Is Israel cut off now? What's, what's happening? And he begins to enter into these questions. And last week, um, and I tried to take a, a very practical approach um, to a kind of a complex issue of like, what are the truths that we can pull out of this that actually are crucial to our understanding of what it means to be children of God? And we considered three very significant principles. And if you weren't here last week and haven't heard that message, I would encourage you to listen to it because I think that those principles are, have become sort of foundational for me moving forward in this season. And I, I, I pray that they're foundational for the church, which is the principle of truth-telling that Paul is wanting them to know that what he is telling them flows out of the truth that is found in Jesus who is truth personified. And that truth telling is essential to the Christian faith. That his truth telling means that his heart, and he said, I'm not about to tell you something that's hyperbolic. When I say I would be accursed if I could guarantee my, my brothers um, salvation, if I, could, if I could save Israel, give give up my salvation that Israel might be saved, I would do it. And what he's saying is that his love for a people that actually had turned against him was, was 
created and defined by the love of God that had been poured out in his hearts and the truth that he speaks, which is a truth that sometimes is harsh, um, it's firm, it's direct, but it's always driven by the love of the gospel. And for us to be a gospel people, we need to be a people that tell the truth, which means that we are a confessional people. The confession is essential to our understanding of what it means to be in fellowship with God and to be in fellowship with one another. It's not allowing secrets to hold power over your life. The whole purpose of the gospel is to reverse what happened in the garden, which is sin, which was followed by shame and hiding. The gospel is to bring us out of shame and out of hiding into the light where we can live with a new confidence that in spite of our brokenness, we are radically loved. And that should be a defining principle for Door of Hope. We can't afford to keep secrets from one another. We can't afford to try to hide the things that cannot be hidden from God. Um, we're not fooling him. We're not fooling anyone. When people can tell when we live in darkness, and sadly, it's often everyone around us that can see it more clearly than we can. It's about coming into the light. The second principle that we dug into is the principle of substitutionary love, which is Paul's statement, I would give up my life for the salvation of them. That is a direct correspondence to how radically transforming the gospel is, where Paul's concern is now more for the other than for self. And this is why it's an important principle for us at a church because one of the reasons the church is experiencing a mass exodus, there's a fascinating article in the Atlantic, by the way, last week about why the church is, the evangelical church is exploding right now and why so many are walking away from their faith. And his argument was that it's a discipleship issue. And I would agree with that. It, the only problem is, is that discipleship is one of those words that everybody has their own definition of what it means. I think that the issue is that, is that the church has been turned into, it's not so much a place of easy beliefism as it is a place that's been turned into an individualistic approach um, to enlightenment. My desire to understand who I am and what God has for me personally has become the supreme message that I believe has been preached in the church over the last 40 years and we have lost our sense of community that the letters written in the New Testament it's hard in our individualistic age to not read the scripture as something that's written to you personally you are meant to read it personally but you're also meant to keep it in the context that these are letters to churches to communities so when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's telling the church to do that together. Our individualistic approach to the gospel has led people to becoming disinterested in the gospel because the whole purpose of the gospel is to move us out of the narrowness of self-focus into the broad focus of, of a gospel-centered identity that means that our eyes are fixed upon Jesus, which means if they're fixed upon Jesus, they now become fixed upon the other upon your neighbor, whoever is in front of you, behind you, next to you. It's you begin to see people with a new lens. It's that phrase I use, a sacramental cast. It transforms the way that we look at the world and the way that we look at community, where there is a self-forgetfulness. It's not the loss of identity. It's actually the discovery of what you're actually meant to be only as your life is poured out for the good of others. So the principle of substitutionary love is an essential principle moving forward because that actually will protect the church. From, we weren't prepared for COVID and all of the political tension. And the moment our individualistic worldviews collapsed, it, all of a sudden the question is, does the church even have anything to offer me? And I think that's a deep problem because it's, it's, not, it's not a move toward doing more things it's a move toward a greater understanding that the purpose of the gospel is not sinning less, but loving more. It's not, it's not arriving, it's knowing, intimately knowing. And so the third principle, which is where we're going to begin to move into more deeply now, is, is that, that principle of first and second things. And that is that the tendency within the Jewish people is the same tendency that is found in us people. That's not a proper English, but it's, not, it's the same in us, which is our tendency to take good things and make them supreme. 
It's the tendency to settle for the good when God wants to give us the best. It's the belief that I am chosen because of my relationship to my parents' faith or my relationship to the church. And what Paul's going to begin to blow up is that the Jewish complaints about their idea of how the gospel is in conflict with God's covenantal promises, Paul's basically gonna say, no, there is no conflict. The conflict is that you misunderstood the purpose of the law to begin with and the, and the, me and the mechanisms by which God works throughout human history, which has always been the same. It is that by faith we are saved and why Abrahamic faith has always been the blueprint for an understanding of proper, a uh, proper understanding of what it means to enter into a saving world of God. So what does he begin with? In verse six, you have the first question, has God's word failed? But is it, is it not as though God's word has failed? Uh, and, and so he's saying, listen, it, for the, he's, he's, Paul's brilliant rhetoric. And so he's entering in, he uses, he uses uh, philosophical devices to help people think about the issue, to ponder. He's, he's, he's imagining, it's a great tool for a preacher, he's imagining what the objections might be. He poses the question um, and then brings forth the answer. Uh, and I think that this is, this is super important. So if this first question is, has God's word failed? He goes, into, um, he goes into a series of illustrations to show that no, his word has not failed. And he begins in, in, um, in verse six, he says, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So notice, first of all, he says, this is not a flesh and blood reality. This is a covenantal promise with a particular people a group of people that is based upon a decision made in God that he would choose Israel, that through Israel all nations would be blessed. And you remember I said the logic of election is not so much who's in and who's out. The logic of election is that God chooses that through that vehicle, that, that, that elect one, he can become a conduit of the gospel message to all. Jesus says to his, to his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. And then what does he follow up with in the, in the Great Commission? Now go, therefore, into all the nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Election again and again is a picture. Abraham, I have chosen you that through your seed all the nations will be blessed. Remember, Israel failed in its covenantal election. God chose Israel and he says, you shall be a nation of priests to the world. But the failure on Israel is that they became a nation with priests that were meant for Israel. That was never God's intent. That wasn't his design. That God's heart is wrapped up in John 3.16. So when we read these passages, we have to be very careful Context is everything, and mystery matters. The moment you try to create a systematic theology that is airtight, you are forced to force passages into a box where they will not fit. And, and then it's just, well, it can't mean that. That's like the, the MO. There's nothing worse than a really, really brilliant academic, and they'll be like, they don't have an answer because the verse doesn't fit into their particular systematic grid, and then you'll read a commentary. I can think of one in particular, uh, a very specific commentary. Uh, it was my first like study Bible, John MacArthur study Bible. And, and on three, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he's like, well, it can't mean that. I'm like, well, that's what it says. He's like, even though it actually means cosmos, it means that he loves all you know, people from all types, all types of people from the world. I'm like, that's just not even what it says though. Like, and 
go to, go to 1 John. Not only is he a propitiation for our sins, but he's a propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Once again, in his commentary, all it says is, yeah, that's not what it means. Uh, it means, you know, t- peoples from all over the world. I'm like, why? Why, why do you do that? Like, it doesn't say that. So it's this attempt, it's the forcing of things into particular passages. And let me be very clear, when you read passages, um, we have to keep the tension in play. We don't want confusion or contradiction, but we should be comfortable with paradox. We should be comfortable with the fact that we are not God and God's ability to work in human history in a way that does not stop his purposes or his plans and at the same time leaving space for human responsibility. Although we don't have necessarily categories for how those two things can live in the same room, the Bible seems to give quite a bit of space for it. And I think that we should take all of those things seriously and let everyone else that, that wants to debate on such issues, because what I have found in my 12 and a half years of leading Door of Hope is that I want to be very careful to not answer questions that 98% of you are not even asking. It was like when I first got saved and I asked my friend, hey, Scott, do you think that God sits inside of time or outside of time? And he goes, man, I don't know. I just want to love Jesus. And I was like, that was a stupid answer. (laughs) But it wasn't. It was a much better answer (laughs) than the silliness of the question I was asking. (laughs) So... Here he moves in. He says, for not all are descended from Israel, belongs to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of flesh that are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offering. He's moving back. He's showing that there are two Israels, essentially. There is spiritual Israel, and then there is the people of Israel. And not everyone that was a part of the nation of Israel were God's covenantal people because of their response to God's covenant. And Paul is showing once again, as I said, Jesus doesn't separate us um, into multiple categories. When he says, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Therefore, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? He sees the world in two separate groups, evil people who believe in him and evil people who don't. We just happen to define evil in a way that makes us uncomfortable with the idea of being called evil. But Jesus is pretty quick to call his own disciples evil because that is the reality of the sinful nature at play and why we need to cast ourselves in total dependence upon Jesus. It's not that we're not capable of of sanctification. It's just that we can't escape the broken world in which we live. We don't get to transcend it. We do get to be empowered to live in it and to know that we are secure in spite of the mixture that's always at play. He goes on to say two examples in 9 through 13. He says, Ishmael and Isaac, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. You remember, God tells Abraham that he will have a son, a promised son that through him, his covenantal promises and purposes will be fulfilled. Abraham is impatient with God. God waits until Abraham is too old to actually have kids. And, Sarah, and literally, in, earlier in Romans, it's like he said, essentially, that Sarah's womb was, you know, outdated. Um, she was, they, were like, they were like 100 years old. And, and, and he waited until they could not have children so that he could miraculously provide. He could fulfill his purposes and plans. But they, Sarah becoming impatient, tells Abraham to sleep with her maidservant, Hagar. He sleeps with her and she gets pregnant and she has a son and it's Ishmael. And Abraham is pleased, but God does not recognize him as the son of promise. And here's the thing is that this doesn't mean that he hated Ishmael. It just means that God had a plan and Abraham decided to get in the way of that plan. And God does not recognize it. He's like, no, my covenantal promise has to do with what I am going to do in my world through you. You chose to take that plan and and define it for yourself. I always say that when God gives you a dream, be very careful to not try to bypass 
his fulfilling that dream in and through your life. I often say that God gives us what we want when we no longer need it and often in a way that we never expected it. Um, and when I first got saved, I would constantly I'd be like, Jesus, now I have you. Now let's you and I co-plan together how it is that I'm going to be a rock star. And he's like, yeah, let's just take that away from you completely. And you can paint houses for a while until you get it. And it, was, and it was literally when I finally surrendered and thought my music career was over. And it was literally, I said, Lord, you know, if I need to paint houses for the rest of my life, and I like painting houses. I, I even had a cool, cool little motto, beautifying the world one wall at a time. Um, <laughs> which is a really important motto for a guy with ADD. Because <laughs> if you don't remember that it's one wall at a time, you're like, too many walls, frozen. <laughs> I'm going to go write a song. <laughs> um, but but that, that reality of like, there was a point where I just finally got it. It was like, Lord, if this is what you want me to do, just give me the joy to do it. And it was like, that surrender, literally the next week I got a call from a church offering me a job as a worship pastor and I got a call from Tooth and Nail Records asking me to make a worship record that sounded like Coldplay. And I said, sadly, yes to both of those things. <laughs> but it was a complete change. It was like I, had, I was surrendered to that just not being a thing anymore and I had to be okay with that. It's that question of like, God's like, am I enough? It's the principle of first and second things. Will you let me be first so that I can define the other things that come into your life? Everything else is a bonus. And listen, that isn't even how it always works. Jeremiah was a prophet of God who never saw fruit in his entire life. He never saw any fruit. He was a weeping prophet. The benefit of Jeremiah's work came after his death. And I think that we need to understand that. There is no guarantee that like, hey, you surrender this and for sure God's going to give it right back to you. But the principle is true. When we die to ourselves, Jesus has the ability to bring resurrection life out of it, even when it's painful. And I think that that's the beauty of the gospel. And here we see God's rejection of Ishmael was because Abraham was trying to fulfill God's purposes and plans in his own strength and his own, own ability. And Paul, and Paul is pointing out, listen, look at, look at this, look at the nature here. God, nothing's going to stop God's purposes. And it wasn't, he wasn't going to utilize um, Ishmael. Okay, oh, you took it into your own hands. Okay, he's now the covenantal son. In fact, what does he say to, when he asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? He says, Abraham, take your son, your only son and go and offer him. But God still blessed Ishmael. God turned him into a prosperous nation. But he also became a source of a, a thorn in Israel's side because of Abraham's attempt to take these things into his own hands. Ja Jacob and Esau is another one. These are one of these passages. This is a frustrating passage when people um, read into this more than what is being said. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Quoting from Malachi, first of all, that passage has nothing to do with two individuals in Malachi. It has to do with two nations. Israel I have loved, Edom I have hated. But it also has to do with that Jewish idiom because Jesus, is, does God actually hate Esau? Well, if you can say that he hates Esau, then you also have to say that he hates mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. Because there is no God behind the back of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. If you've seen him, you have seen the Father. And what did he say? He said... Unless you hate mother, brother, and sister, and come follow me, you cannot be my disciple. What is he saying? First, the principle of first and second things is that play again. You cannot give supremacy to these things without them ruining your life. If you want to be my disciple, you have to be willing to let go of everything. When people ask me, what will it cost me to follow Jesus? The only answer I can actually give to you is the only honest answer, which is it's going to cost you everything. 
It's going to cost you everything. And God has the right to take and to give. He has the right, for he holds the keys to life and death. Some of you have lost people you love, and you say, how could God do that? God understands the beginning from the end. The question isn't why do these things happen or why are these, why are these things in, in play? The question is, is, who has God revealed himself to be through his son? And when I look at the face of Jesus and when I listen to the words of Jesus, I do not see a God who hates the majority of humanity and likes a couple people. I also don't see a God who creates people for the sheer purpose of demonstrating his glory through their destruction. Because that actually turns God into a monster. It turns God actually into the devil. It makes him ultimately responsible for sin. And that's not Paul's argument as we will move forward. His argument is that God is sovereign in his purposes and his plans and he has already shown that his purposes and plans are good. And so he begins to ask questions like God asking Job, who are you to question God? We can trust in Jesus. That's the point. It's the argument between Elosha and Ivan in Brothers Karamazov when Ivan says, I can't believe in a God who allows human suffering. And, and Elosha says brilliantly to his brother, I don't try to understand human suffering. I believe in God in his goodness, which allows me to enter into that suffering. You're so caught up in the suffering that you don't do anything. Your atheism has actually led you to a self-centered life. If you, expect, if you accepted the mystery, you would actually be able to engage in the world in a meaningful way. But because you're so fixated on the questions that you can't answer, you have actually not only lost the ability to love others, but you've lost yourself as well. And I think that here, when you say, as he says, this isn't about Esau not being one who is made in the image of God, that God loves. It has to do with God's purposes and plans and, and Jacob being the vehicle by which those purposes and plans were to take place. And was Jacob a better dude than Esau? I mean, Jacob's very name was, was, he, he, was he was a conniver. He was a liar. He was a manipulator. His wrestling with God, uh, it was a picture of his life. He is constantly trying to take his own life, uh, his own life into his own hands. So God's covenantal purposes weren't based upon Jacob being awesome and Esau um, being awful. It was that God had a plan and he knew how he was going to fulfill his redemptive purposes through history. And this is how it is working. And I think that this is once again, two examples of as the question is that God's word can be trusted because God, in spite of the brokenness of the vehicles by which he chooses, whether it's the nation or the person, nothing's going to stop his redemptive purposes, which Paul has been proclaiming has been accomplished in the person of Jesus. The next question, he says, is God unjust then? Is God unjust? What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God, on God's part? By no means. By no means. Paul's answer is no. God is the essence of justice. Someone actually asked me um, recently in an email what I think about um, the, the question of righteous indignation at injustice in the world. Um, and, and my response is, I think grace actually overrides or mercy is greater than judgment and that grace is a more compelling means by which we are to navigate life in this world right now. And yes, God is able to have righteous indignation, but my argument is that I watched Christians try to maintain righteous indignation last year and all it did was turn them into really horrible, sinful people that they already are, like we all are, because we can't hold our indignation and maintain righteousness. That's why it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's why Jesus said, love your enemy. Because God's indignation, his wrath is his love violated. He hates what robs him of what he loves, which is people. He is able to, he is able to, to exercise justice in a way that is true and 
perfect and it is in accordance with his character. And you can't separate the attributes of God. He isn't like he loves here and then, or he hates. He loves and he hates what robs him of what he loves. His wrath is the outcome of his love violated. That is generally not how our wrath works. And that's why I say like, Jesus' own words of, you know, whoever looks at his, whoever is angry with his brother. You know, I like the King James, they soften the blow, but it's not in the text. Whoever is angry with his brother without cause. Um, so it, it leaves room for you to be angry. Uh, sadly, that's actually not there. And the text just says, whoever is angry with his brother is a murderer. So I, I love to push back on this, like, like, I'm a pacifist. I'm like, well, sweet. But I guarantee the inside of your brain is freaking clockwork orange as you drive around Portland. You're like, you are mentally ultra-violence. You're just like, pow, 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 pow. Like, I'll kill you. Decapitation. <laughs> Whatever. I'm like, I, and you're like, but I don't hurt people. I don't fight. <laughs> but I just destroyed you a million times in my head. That's how I was. I was the most passive kid in high school and horribly bullied. And I lived out so many ninja fantasies. <laughs> Seventh grade, I'm like, I just imagine myself with one of those smoke balls, like, poof, like I disappear, and then there's like, swoosh, just heads everywhere. And then, I'd, and then my teacher would yell at me, wait, wake up. And I'd be like, what, what, sorry. I, sorry, Joey, but you were so mean. <laughs> God is unjust, is not unjust. <laughs> we are. <laughs> That illustration had nothing to do with this text, but we just need some levity as you get into some scary passages. Um, I just want you to picture. I'm gonna, it's Halloween. I should have showed up as a ninja today. That would have been amazing with my little sword. I just roll in and throw like a star at that. <laughs> For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will, or, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What do you see in God's mercy in Scripture? Is Paul saying that God is not merciful to some and merciful to others? Or is he just saying it's God's prerogative? The point is that it's not our place to question God, but there's enough text and enough. What is the first thing that God proclaims about himself to Moses? And that's why I say we have to actually take these passages in context. Paul's quoting from the Old Testament. But we see Paul says that, that, or God says over Moses, when Moses says, show me your glory. And what does he say? He says, he says the Lord, the Lord your God, abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger. Slow to anger. That mercy is something that you see far more prevalently in the Old Testament than swift judgment. And even in those passages in swift judgment, like for example, Achan um, in the Valley of Achor, when his entire family and all of his cattle and all of his pets were all stoned to death by the children of Israel because Achan had stolen treasure and hid it in his tent, um, God, things that God said were cursed and were not to be taken as, as the children of Israel came into the promised land, Achan's rebellion brought a little leaven into the, into the tribe of Israel and they were defeated at the battle of Ai because of Achan's sin. And God says, Israel has sinned against me. It's fascinating. One man's sin held everybody responsible. And Achan confesses to Joshua. He says, Joshua says, tell me what you have done, my son. And I think it's interesting, he uses like such soft language. And he says, it's true, I have sinned against God and I have sinned against my brothers and I have taken, I took a robe, I took some gold and it's hidden under my tent. Joshua sends his soldiers to go get those things. He brings them back to Joshua and Joshua looks at Achan and says, you have troubled Israel, now the Lord God will trouble you. They were taken to the Valley of Achor and that is where they were put to death. Here's the fascinating thing. I always use acor is literally means trouble. Um, not acorn, but acor. And trouble, that valley of trouble in Isaiah becomes a place where God brings the children of Israel to give them rest. And then in Hosea, 
I will, I will allure her into the wilderness and I will give her the valley of Achor as a door of hope. It's where we get our name because Achor is a picture of the cross. And we can say that judgment was severe. The severity of that judgment is because it doesn't actually happen very often. And the other reason it's severe is because we're thinking of it in terms of salvation and damnation. But it's not that. It's just judgment. We have no picture. There's no reason to believe that Achan was sent to hell. What we have reason to believe is, is that, there are, that you cannot, even as we are saved, there are still consequences for the things that we do. If you're a mass murderer and you give your life to Jesus in a, in a state that allows capital punishment, just because you got saved doesn't mean you don't have to go through capital punishment. That's the reality. But you see, we tend to put eternal lenses onto these passages which turns God into a monster when the purpose is to reveal God cares. What we should ask is, why would God allow Achan's family to be killed? What we should ask is the more important question is, why don't we take sin more seriously? That's the question. And I think that here, what Paul is showing is like, listen, God is a God who is trustworthy in Jesus. And so when we trust, it, trust in God's mercy. And trust that his mercy is not dependent upon you, it's dependent upon who he is in the essence of his being. That's the purpose. The purpose of God in Israel. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very pur purpose I have raised you up, that I might show, him, show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed on all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he, have, who he wills, and he will harden whomever he wills. Once again, that passage, out of context, it just sounds like God created Pharaoh to be a player, a bad guy in a play in which he has no control over his life, and God hardened his heart. It does say that God hardened his heart, but it says God hardened his heart after three or four times, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The principle at play is the very principle that's in Romans 1. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but it, their foolish hearts became, their foolish hearts uh, were, uh, were darkened, and they became futile in their thoughts, and they denied the reality of God, which is clearly seen in the, in the universe, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. For this reason, God gave them over. It's the same language, essentially, as the hardening of the heart. God gave them over because of what they have done. We are told specifically that people will be judged based upon their unbelief. Their unbelief, which means it's something they did. God is not responsible for people's sin, for their rebellion. If God actually created people for the sheer purpose of damnation, and that people are so blind in their, in their sin that they're not even aware and they actually don't have the capacity to believe, if that's the logic that you play out, then how could God hold them responsible for something he didn't even give them the capacity to do? How could he hold them responsible for unbelief if they never had the ability to believe? That actually doesn't make sense. That, my friends, turns God into a monster. And I think that here is the pain. And then I have good friends that will argue with me on this. And if you hold, if you hold to a very particular, I'm Reformed, but I'm much more in a Luther strain than a Calvin strain. Uh, but all I would say is the question is, is how can we with honesty present the gospel to the world? We can't utilize the foolish argument. Well, we don't know who's, who's elect. It doesn't matter. It's dishonest to proclaim the gospel to a group of people that do not have the ability to believe. And it's, and it's extremely damaging to believe that God would judge them for something that he did not give them the capacity to do. There has to be a mystery. There has to be a tension. And I don't think the only argument is one side, it's all human responsibility, or the other side. Everything is, is, is meticulously ordained. Everything you do has already been defined for you. Listen, we're not determinists. Jesus says, whoever the Son of Man sets free shall be free indeed. There's no freedom if everything's determined. So, here we have the purpose of Israel is that what you have is that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and God gave him over. He hardened it. 
And it's God's prerogative to function, to fulfill his purposes and his plans in accordance with his character. And he utilized a man who already had turned against his people and he gave him multiple opportunities to release them. And he didn't. And after Pharaoh denied and hardened his own heart again and again, God therefore gave him over to do those things which are debased, if I could borrow from the words of Romans 1. And that's exactly what he did. And even the miracles and the judgment that came on Israel, all of those things were opportunities, or excuse me, on Egypt, were opportunities for Egypt to see that the God of Israel was real and that they should probably repent and follow him. And that is why there were so many of mixed blood that actually did go with Israel. Now we have the justice of God with Israel. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? That's actually a great question. It doesn't mean that everything you do is determined, but it does mean that you are ultimately not your own. It does mean that God owns everything that is. It's what Luther meant when he said, the devil is still the Lord's devil. And all that means, it doesn't mean that God is responsible for everything the devil does, but it does say in scripture that the devil has to ask permission, which is one of those pictures to mysteriously show us that God is ultimately in control and that his redemptive purposes are at play. And listen, again and again, Dorothy Sayers, great quote. It, whatever God is doing when it comes to human suffering, in the world in which we live, he has played fair and taken his own medicine. That's why Jesus is so important. Because he entered into that place by which he takes these judgments into himself. What we should be doing is not, I have control of my own life. And this is what Paul is saying, trust God. Trust him. He's already proven that he's trustworthy. And he's just saying, trust him. And he's kind of playing on, the, on even like the Job text. Like, why are you trying to get your head around God's plans? You're a part of that plan by being a witness to his son. So quit getting hung up on things you don't even understand is essentially what he's saying. You misinterpret the Old Testament, which is what's landed you in this place where now you're in conflict with your brothers and sisters. The next question, can God do what he wants? Yes. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of some lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Once again, be careful to not read into this text. God did not design someone to do that which is in complete contradiction to his character. It says that in God is no darkness at all. So, to think of God as this molder, think of the, the, the good person, the believer, and the, and the evil person. That's God actually creating and shaping something and giving it the capacity and actually hardwiring its intents to be evil. Everything that the artist makes is a reflection of the artist. So let me ask you the question again then. Does God make evil things? Does he? No, he does not. So why would we turn this passage into him making an evil thing? The question is, is does God have the right to fulfill his purposes and can he utilize his good creation, which has gone wrong, to fulfill those purposes? And is he ever unjust in his judgment? No, he is not. And his judgment has been fully taken into his son, Jesus, so we can absolutely trust that his character is good. That's, I love John Wesley in talking with, it might have been with Whitfield. He's, he was like talking with him about the interpretation of Romans 9. And all Wesley said is, whatever it means, it cannot mean that. And what he was saying is like, you can't, and that's why Wesley famously said, and I'm not Wesleyan, I'm not Arminian, uh, but I, when Wesley famously said, uh, he said, your God is my devil. I understand that because I've seen people turn God into this, this 
this creature, this creator that has this strange secret mean streak that is so stoked to send people to hell. And I think that has no place in scripture. And that shows the heart of man in our hatred for one another rather than the love of God that's revealed in the person of Jesus. Jesus would not say, love your enemies if he did not love them. Everything he commanded of us is first true in himself. As the potter no right over the clay to make out of some lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. You think of Judas. Judas was given every opportunity that the other disciples did and he continued to rebel, but God already working through Judas's choice to bring about good. His ability is to weave the dissonant notes of human history into his perfect orchestration, which will ultimately be fulfilled. Tozer gave the best example of how human responsibility, um, and he said that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was in the congregation when he, when he gave it, because Jones loved his book, Pursuit of God, but they differed on the understanding of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones was the Queen's doctor, one of the great preachers of the 20th century, um, but he was, he was very, he was traditionally um, reformed and Calvinistic. So he's at Tozer's church in Chicago, and Tozer gave this, he goes, this is the way that I see it. It's a cruise ship, it's going from, it's going from New York to London, and on that cruise ship, you can go anywhere you want on the boat, anywhere you want. But ultimately, it's gonna end up where it's gonna end up. <laughs> and he's like, it's just, there's just space. It's limited freedom. It's not total freedom. Nothing is totally free. That's why when people get so worked up about their freedoms being violated right now, you know what? I actually did some reading. You know that a lot of Americans were just as angry about seatbelt laws as they were vaccinations? Who's, is anyone still angry about seatbelt laws? <laughs> If you raise your hand, I might trust you. <laughs> like, I mean, I only am frustrated at seatbelt laws when I choose not to wear it, and then my car seat just goes beep, 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 beep. I'm like, if I could silence that thing, I'd never wear a seatbelt ever again. No, this is, this is the, the funny thing is that we have, we fall into, well, I'll do those things, but that's a violation of my freedom. You're not free. You can't go into an airport and say, I got a bomb, and as a joke, that's not funny, and you'll get arrested. Like, you're not free not free in the way that you think. And I think that this is the purpose here is that God is still ultimately in control, which is the final question. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that's the language that hangs people up. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, which ultimately means that you cannot continue a path of rebellion against a living God and reject his son and not become the very thing that you are without him. That's the reality. Heaven and hell does lie in the balance. The options are not God makes everything happen exactly as he wants and every person is programmed to do what they do or the other option is, is everybody gets in and everybody's saved in the end. Those aren't the only options. The option is this, is that the invitation is consistently proclaimed in Scripture. All who are weary, come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me and find rest for your soul. Trust in me. Scripture says, whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever puts their faith in the work of the Son. But how can one reject the only means by which we can be cured? So when people say, is Jesus truly the only way? Well, what does he say about himself? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And his invitation is to come. We're told if you read this passage and you don't put it in its proper context, with verses such as 1 Timothy, where it says, God desires all people to come to a saving knowledge. Many are called, few are chosen. What does that mean? Even that, choosing has more to do with a role in which you play in those purposes. I have been chosen to be a conduit of the gospel. Calling has to do with being called into the family of God. Calling actually has less to do with your occupation and more to do with your standing before God. I'm called to be a follower of Jesus, to surrender my life to him. 
And then God chose me as a foolish vehicle to be a pastor and to be a preacher. And I think the joke is, is because I was the least likely candidate, and I still am. And I think that this is the reality here, is that we can trust in his plan. And we can trust, though, and we should, with fear and trembling, trembling, ask the question, can one continually reject the gospel and not experience dire consequences? I know there are many right now that are trying to diminish the reality of hell and say that hell itself will be purged. Even one of my favorite authors ever, George MacDonald, had a, a universal, at least his universalism was still kind of within the realm of orthodoxy because he believed people would go to hell and be cleansed like a purgatory. Um, it's better than the kind of universalism that's a play today, which is just that everything goes to the same place and it's all good and you're awesome and just find your awesomeness and you're gonna find the God within yourself. That's the more terrifying uh, reality. At least McDonald left room for real punishment. Um, he just didn't believe it would, be, it would be eternal. I don't find the freedom in scripture to escape those passages. But I think like hell, it's not something that, uh, like heaven, it should not be speculated upon because the language used around it is strange, mysterious, metaphorical, and beyond comprehension. All I'm comfortable saying when Luis Palau goes, what do you think about hell, brother? And I'm like, that's a weird question. Um, and I said, I think I don't want anyone to go there. And he goes, good answer. <laughs> that's the desire. The response defines how you then are prepared. And all that means is that ultimately we don't get to close out how the story ends. But we do have a limited freedom within the story because Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Nobody comes to me, he says, unless the Father draw him. And the question is, is if the Spirit's drawing you here, don't worry about, what about those people that never heard this? Or what about that person over there? The question is, is how are you with Jesus today? Have you said yes to his yes? Because I believe the only sin that can ultimately separate you from God for all of eternity is to reject the only cure from the very thing that, is, that separated us to begin with, and that is sin. And he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. Trust in him, and you've got nothing to bring to the table except yourself. And there is no merit in saying yes to his yes because you couldn't even say yes unless he opened your eyes to that reality. Jesus is in control, and whatever God is like, he is like him. And I'll just say what it says in Hebrews 1 in closing. God at various times has spoken through the prophets and through the scriptures. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Which means that he has nothing else to say. But what he continues to say to you and I in the person of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.